Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. We are back with another update on Russia-Ukraine. Uh, last Friday, the U.S. intelligence community revealed that it has reason to believe that the Russian military action against Ukraine is imminent, with an invasion possibly occurring as soon as this week. This comes as Moscow continues to bolster its military posture in the region, including through joint exercises with Belarus and a buildup of additional naval capabilities in the Black Sea. Over the past few days, the Biden administration has begun evacuating the U.S. Embassy, uh, instructed American citizens to leave Ukraine immediately, and reiterated its intention to forge a massive transatlantic response to any violation of Ukraine's territorial integrity, Russia, of course, has predictably denied that it has any plans to attack Ukraine. Um, and some European allies, as well as Ukrainian President Zelensky, also continue to downplay the U.S. assessment. So in order to make sense of where we are, on, kind of in a day-by-day -day at this point, we're really happy to have both Mike Kaufman and Jeff Edmonds uh, join us for the podcast. Thanks to both of you for being here. Really quick background, um, Mike is the research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA uh, and an adjunct fellow at CNAS. Jeff Edmonds is also a research scientist at, also at CNA in the Russia Studies program and also an adjunct senior fellow here at CNAS. So we've got the crew together. Pressure continues to mount. And of course, right before um, we're recording this, we had the Putin Lavrov presser. So Mike, why don't I start with you? I don't know if that's where you want to start the story, but seems like a good place to jump in. Kind of what was your take of, of, of what we heard this morning? Um, I mean, my personal take was that uh, they tried to do a presser that made it sound like they were taking a de-escalatory tone. But to me, this is all desired information for a couple of basic reasons. I know people are sort of trying to grasp any straws available that suggest that there's likely going to be a de-escalation in this confrontation and that Russia would like to negotiate. That's the way sort of it looked ambiguously as though Putin was responding to Lavrov's statement that there was a chance for diplomatic progress and, and show you saying that the exercise would wind down and so on and so forth. But here's the problem with those interpretations. First, all the material evidence on the ground shows Russia putting the final pieces in place for a large-scale military operation against Ukraine, and nothing's changing on that score, right? So in terms of the physical evidence we have available, it all points against at least a Russian decision towards de-escalation, right? Uh, second, it, it does look increasingly like they're entering a kind of go-no-go -no -go posture where in the coming weeks they'll definitely have to make a call, if not this week alone. Uh, third, I don't know what the expectations were from the meeting, because I certainly didn't imagine that um, Putin would meet with Lavrov and Lavrov would tell him something about how diplomacy is going. And then would, Putin would begin to order a war and invade Ukraine on national television, you know, in the midst of the discussion. I certainly um, didn't see, didn't expect that was a likely outcome. And last, the meeting, logically, the two pressers they had made, didn't make much sense to me, because if you subscribe to the prop position that this is course of diplomacy to put pressure on Ukraine and on the United States and Europeans, right? And that the leverage is the threat of the invasion. And the pressure on Ukraine has really mounted in the last weeks, particularly in the Ukrainian economy, right? Flights are being canceled even at this point now because nobody will insure. Uh, you could see that from Russia's perspective, you know, Moscow is largely getting what, what, it's, what it wants. It's, it's essentially 
um, starting to succeed in putting the screws to Ukraine. So why would Putin come out and have two meetings during which he implies that he's going to de-escalate and trade off all the leverage, the threat of invasion, in exchange for absolutely nothing visible or tangible, either from the Ukrainians or from the United States? Like, what would be the logic of him now de-escalating? He doesn't have to. He can keep this up for some weeks. So what's the point of these public meetings then, right? To me, I think they're resetting the narrative. I think my view is that they might be, um, they might have been put on the back foot by the constant leaks and announcements from the United States. Because logically, the play doesn't make sense, the course of diplomacy play. They haven't gotten much of anything, right? The pressure is only increasing now. So why, why would they be publicly de-escalating in exchange for what appears to be nothing significant in terms of gains? Jeff, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would just say, you know, the administration has said all along that the Russians will seek to create some kind of pretext for this that in some way blames the Ukrainians. And so it's perfectly feasible for the for the Russian leadership to come out right now and say, well, you know, maybe we can continue these talks. We'll see what happens. And then whatever pretext, you know, whether or not it's believable or not, it's another thing. But, you know, to have some kind of pretext, they can just say, well, we were fine, but the Ukrainians did this. And so we've decided to go in. And to Mike's point, I think, you know, you really have to watch what's happening on the ground. It's really hard to overstate the, the sheer level of military power they brought to the region. And all along with, I mean, if you're only listening to foreign policy professionals from Moscow, you're going to get what I call this weird whiplash effect, where in one sense, I think because they're diplomats and that's what they've done for decades, you're going to get this sense that they want to continue talking, but they will turn right around and say, well, the only thing that we are going to talk about is your tentative agreement to all of our security guarantees. And we're not willing to talk about anything else. And all of us know that, I mean, those aren't negotiations. And so I, I think that part of the, you know, you kind of, you can get what you want out of it in the sense that, well, so-and-so suggested we could continue to talk. But when you look at the, the maximalist nature of the, of the security guarantees, Lavrov mentioned all of them today um, and them not deterring from that, not, you know, swerving away from that. And then the military buildup, it, it, to me, it looks pretty, pretty pessimistic. I, I, would, I would be very cautious about reading anything positive about, about the uh, conversation today. Uh, well, thank you both. I I have to say I, I I I find it interesting that there are a lot of people in our circle here in in Washington uh, who really are grasping at these at these things and and these uh, these squeaks and squawks coming out of Moscow that there there might be a de-escalation. I just I'm really surprised at that. It just shows the level I think of anxiety here. You know that uh, people are really looking for a an, an exit out. But let, let me ask you both that this. You know if you uh, David Ignatius wrote a big piece in the Post today laying out his view of what's going to happen uh, should. Um, should uh, Putin go into uh, Ukraine and and you know I mean what he laid out of it's not necessarily you know something new or you know it's what one would expect, but I'm I want to ask you all about the idea of an insurgency and the idea of uh, how much fight really we would see with with Ukraine and I say that only with the greatest respect for Ukraine and the Ukraine military I I've, I've worked with them as well. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, but I'm, but you know, an insurgency based on not just professional soldiers, but but based on civilians who've now had about a month's worth of training with wooden rifles and there's trenches and these kinds of things, uh, with the the shock of modern warfare, I'm not so sure. 
um, we're going to see an insurgency. You know, uh, he described Ukraine as being like a porcupine. I, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to see a porcupine. And and again, with the greatest respect uh, for Ukraine bravery and the greatest respect for that nation and those people, what, what's, what is your feel for the idea that we're going to see an insurgency that will last a long time that the U.S. would be able to, you know, uh, support? I mean, is that going to, is that really possible? I mean, not possible, but it, how probable is it? I tend to, so there is a, a kind of a wide range of views on how effective Ukrainians would be in an insurgency. And I tend to give that one of the larger unknowns of this whole thing. It's very complicated to figure out what mechanism triggers somebody to get off a couch, grab an RPG and shoot a Russian tank, right? That's a that's actually a very complicated, hard thing for us to understand. I mean, I've been into insurgencies and I can tell you it can always go as planned. Um, and so so I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to tell. The Ukrainians do have a history, you know, going back to, you know, World War II and fighting the Soviets and the Germans, there was a history of, of, you know, a level of insurgency there, but that was a long time ago. And so it's really hard to tell, you know, whether or not there's going to be this true uprising against the Russian invasion or are people in certain parts of the country going to say, well, I can, I can deal with this for a while. It's not a, it's not a big change. So I think it's, for me, it's one of the, the, the real big unknowns. Mike, Mike you, you want to chime in? Yeah, so, I mean, unfortunately, things are highly contingent, right? And this question is a bit of a sure and scat question where you don't really know what's going to happen until there is a large-scale Russian military operation. Then you're able to see what their objectives are, and you're able to also understand how Ukrainian military and government plans to respond. With all those kind of variables still out there in play, it's hard to make predictions. I would say that... Um, Probably uh, the truth is somewhere in the middle between uh, our optimism about the likelihood that there'll be a insurgency in Ukraine and uh, its genuine um, uh, efficacy and Russian war optimism that just looking at their force posture that they might expect there won't be an insurgency in the parts of Ukraine they intend to seize or hold or occupy, right? Right. Uh, and so the truth is likely to be in the middle. It's likely to be more resistance than they expect, but less than many cheerleaders and supporters of Ukraine right here were, particularly in the last couple of weeks, Jim, I'll be honest, I've been listening to them. And yeah. there's a lot of people who are kind of um, engaging in assuring self-disinformation, from what I can tell, both here and in Ukraine, in believing that Ukraine is somehow too big to be invaded, the Russians don't have the forces to go to Kiev, this, that, and the other. And they're kind of like misinforming themselves in a desperate effort at self-assurance. I guess I can understand that. I just can't subscribe into it because my job was objective analysis. Uh, so that's that's where I am on that question. If, yeah. And if we could just talk a little bit about just so people do have a clear picture of what's happening on the ground. Can you um, maybe, Jeff, we can start with you. Just to kind of talk through what you're seeing, I mean, maybe even put back on your IC hat and, you know, if you had your list of indicators that would precede a major Russian military incursion into Ukraine, you know, how many of those little indicators have turned green that we see, how many are absent or how many are, you know, we had that the stoplight charts where, you know, not quite there yet, but on the way. So I don't know if you were putting back, putting, putting yourself back there, kind of what, where are we on those lists of indicators that you would I mean, expect to see? Yeah, I think most of my indicators are green. I mean, there's, there are a number of units that we've kind of watched to see if they would start deploying, like units like the first guards tank army around Moscow and some other things that, you know, in, in a, in a limited incursion like this might not be brought to the front. 
Um, I think we're seeing that we're seeing a lot of aircraft prepositioning, um, strategic level assets, EW assets. And so you're just you're really seeing the, the formation of the force we think they need to do this operation. There's no at this point, there's no pausing of that. And so and this is all from open source intelligence, um, which is based off of a lot of us based off of TikTok videos, commercial available satellite imagery and things of that nature. It stands to reason that the government has a lot of other intelligence on this. And I think that's one of the reasons they're being so forward leaning this like signals intelligence and things like that you just wouldn't see from the outside. Um, and so I, I think most of my indicators are green. There's there really isn't much more in the negotiating sphere that I can see. And I don't think, you know, I, I you know, maybe Mike has a better number. I think the, the number of battalion tactical groups, you know, the groups that are kind of our metric for how many things have deployed to the border is in the upper 90s, mid 90s. Um, and I think that that's the kind of force you would need to have in place to both one have a very large operation in Ukraine, but also, you know, they may not be planning, they may not think NATO will, will intervene, but you certainly plan for it. And so you've got a large enough force there to really contest the one, you know, successfully invade Ukraine all the way to, you know, surrounding Kiev, most, you know, a lot, about half of the country at least, um, and also be ready in case something else goes, goes sideways. Yeah, Mike, you want to add anything? And also, you know, like in terms of planning for potential NATO responses, isn't there, there's an ongoing exercise right now that would help them kind of deal with a NATO response? Is that right? Yeah, so um, I want to say very much with Jeff on this. If you follow anything I've been writing, I think that everything about Russian force posture still suggests that uh, they are uh, forward deploying the final staging areas. They're still bringing in quite a few forces, logistics enables, enablers and air power and building up a pretty sizable force as well as a potential follow-on force uh, that suggests they do may intend to occupy territory for some time. So there's really nothing to substantiate the interaction I saw this morning between Shoigu and Putin where Shoigu said, oh, you know, this, we wrapped up some exercises and uh, we're going to wrap up the rest maybe next week. It almost sounded ridiculous because they never even declared these all district, all fleet exercises he was referring to, right? That he was sort of alluding to. Um, there's not much evidence to support that. I'll, I'll believe it when I see equipment being loaded on trains heading back to garrisons, okay? When I see that, that's when I'll begin to believe anything that's actually been sent public. On the question of NATO, I mean, it does look like they're probably going to conduct GROM, the annual strategic nuclear forces exercise that's typically held in the fall after Zappa. And That's what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. They hit pause on that. And they're probably, I suspect they're going to conduct it really soon. That's going to be one of their main deterrent exercises uh, when it comes to the prospect of a U.S. or NATO intervention, right? Because they know that definitely the number one thing that gets our attention is things that are nuclear related, right? Uh, nuclear forces. So uh, I expect actually to see that potentially even this week, if not this week, maybe the next. We'll see. They were pretty sizable force posture outside of the immediate area. If you look at the Russian Navy in the Eastern Mediterranean, for example, and the ongoing Russian exercises elsewhere, where they are definitely keeping us busy tracking all these things. And they're not necessarily at all about Ukraine. They are about them turning us and, and showing that there's a real potential for escalation. And we're trying to do the same. We're bringing forces into the theater to deter them from... Um, or, and I just necessarily deter them, but also we don't necessarily know how the conflict will unfold. There's no guarantee it stays localized. Well, if it expands, it becomes a regional conflict. You want to have the forces in place to assure allies to coordinate policy and the like. So we're there very much, you know, for reason of deterring Russia, but also with an assurance mission as well. Um, 
I definitely see there's a chance for a follow-on crisis after Ukraine. You know, this thing plays out several months down the line. Right? It might not just stay limited to Ukraine. But yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. I definitely see both a Russian posture, took the conduct a large-scale military operation, and one that's very clean, clearly aimed at us that has nothing to do with Ukraine and is completely unnecessary for a military operation in Ukraine. You know, uh, thank you for, for all that. I One thing that's interesting is over, over the past 24 hours, I saw, um, you know, through this OSINT uh, that uh, Jeff Evans was talking about, this uh, flight path of two B-52s to, to Fairford, and then they were going back to CONUS, and they did a loop over Europe and then went back to CONUS. And, uh, you know, that's been a standard... <laughs> <laughs> That's been a standard U.S. signal of, of high concern um, when we fly B-52s. And I thought that was very interesting, given the tension and the stress we're all under, um, that what looked like a training flight, U.S. to Fairford, and then uh, Fairford doing a loop and then back to, the, back to the United States. I felt that was very interesting that they chose to continue with that uh, exercise, assuming it was. Maybe this was something that was a pop-up that they ran. Anyway, I, but I thought that was interesting uh, that they would, that they would ratchet, ratchet that up. Uh, but but let me let me go in another direction. I mean, you all could talk about that, but let me ask you. And, and uh, Mike, you talked about this, and I I get a lot of this, but um, from from other people is what would what would a spillover look like? I mean, I, we could sit here for an hour and talk about the various scenarios of what a spillover could look like. But as you all think about something that would happen uh, that would cause something that was more localized in Ukraine to spill over a bit. Um, uh, either by accident or by premeditated decision making, what would, what comes to your mind when you all think about that spillover? One, one thing, one scenario, like the worst case scenario that I've thought of, is that if Russia does something in Ukraine and we respond with these incredible sanctions and things of that nature, and somehow, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we create a a growing or a rather dire um, level of instability in in Russia and in Moscow. And I think if that's the case, then the Russian leadership responds and widens the conflict. Because I think that at that point, I mean, you're from their perspective, you'd almost be fighting for survival. And so everything's on the table at that point. I don't know if that would mean some people say like they might respond with cyber attacks. I actually think it might be something kinetic. If it was if it really came down to that, I mean, I'm talking about like a run on the banks. Things are looking really bad. Um, I think you could you could definitely you could potentially have a scenario where they would actually militarily expand the conflict, whether that's the Baltics or Poland, pick your country or ship or what have you. It would be to escalating that again. I just want to caveat that's kind of my worst case scenario. There might be other other scenarios out there, but that's the one that the back of my mind is we're leveraging these incredibly bad sanctions. Let's keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah, I'd add, so I'm with Jeff definitely on the back end of this crisis, where we get into an iterative cycle of escalation. Russia responds with all sorts of things uh, for sanctions that have strategic effects, especially if they fundamentally destabilize the Russian economy, which obviously impinges on the political stability of the regime. I can't imagine them not doing anything rather than forcing a crisis over it to make it stop. On the front end, I worry about basic things, like if you're going to have offensive cyber warfare, that usually results in collateral damage. Okay, if you're using something powerful like that, electronic warfare definitely will, because that has area-wide effects. And they've dragged basically every piece of EW kit they have in the military um, to those conflict zones. So that's definitely going to be felt by people. I don't know, operating airlines, trying to have communications, all sorts of things. We'll see what the effects are of that. Um, you know, 
force operations, uh, all sorts of things can happen depending on how this war widens. I don't know what the planned policies are of neighboring uh, NATO member states, like how Poland's going to react, how some other states are going to react. They'll definitely be affected potentially in the event of a war by refugee flows, by other things, and then get more actively involved. What's the follow-on uh, consequence of backing insurgency in Ukraine or doing things of that nature? So I just want to kind of show what are some of the front-end you know, potential um, you know, ways this thing could escalate, or at least there'd be collateral effects. So then force other countries to respond and you don't necessarily know where the individual policies will go. I'm not an expert on Poland or Romania. You know? So these are just possibilities. And then the, the back end effects of the follow on implications of an escalating confrontation resulting from this between, you know, Russia, United States and, and Europeans like Jeff commented on. Yeah. Yeah. All good points. Um, I guess the other like scenario, like just to, to, draw you out on that you hear a lot of people talking about is that Putin could sustain this level of con of of uh, pressure on Ukraine for quite some time. Mike, you even just kind of just commented that Russia is succeeding at putting the screws to Ukraine. So how how long you know, and it just seems like such an important question. And I feel like I get different answers from different places. How long do you think that Russia could maintain this current posture on the border without you know, pulling the trigger. I know, Mike, you said they're pretty close to a go, no go kind of juncture, but, you know, I don't know, just to hear you both talk about how long you think Putin could maintain this level of escalation uh, on the border. And is it is it also plausible? And again, I know we're all looking into the crystal ball and trying to understand what's going to happen, but that he could, that some forces could pull back at least a little bit and that we, he, you know, he can continue to ratchet up and ratchet down for really the foreseeable future. Okay. Um, let me grab that first. So uh, with, with the current posture, we have man formations deploying to final staging areas and moving out towards the border. The honest answer is probably some weeks, right? Because at the point that they're at, is just not a posture that we're likely to maintain very long. You know, it's nothing to do with costs, financial costs. If anything, they're probably making more money do the hike in oil price than the deployment itself costs. That's not the issue. It's just more about uh, the forced posture and what's happening with personnel. And also, so combat effectiveness rapidly will decline if they're in these conditions for a prolonged period of time, right? Um, and secondarily, there's a certain point at which it's not useful for coercive effect, right? Because eventually they camp out there for some time, it becomes clear in that posture that you know maybe he he really is deterred by the cost of an of invasion and doesn't want to do it. What they can do is they can pull after some weeks, pull the formations back, park some of the gear, and return the troops to garrison, right? And downscale this whole thing. And then maybe return much later, I don't know, pocket whatever gains they feel they've pocketed, declare victory, then come back a year later or something along those lines and deploy again and try to ask for more. What I don't think is likely where I disagree with people. Some folks think, okay, they just maintain this posture for months and you know, economically squeeze Ukraine the West. And my answer to that is that's not a practical proposition. First of all, physically, they're unlikely to be able to maintain this posture for months. They will have to dial it back and at least bring the gear back towards um, uh, earlier uh, uh, areas where they had it parked. Okay, this is issue one and pulling the troops back to second. Um, what would be the point? So you lose course of credibility pretty fast over a deployment like this. Eventually, people begin to believe that either you're bluffing 
or there's just a course of gambit either way. But point being is that you can't sustain this, the course of effect from it over time. All right. Ukrainians and others will judge that Russia is ultimately buffing. It's not going to, that's not going to go forward with us. So it, it doesn't pay long-term dividends. Um, so I don't, I don't see that effect. And people will say, well, well, we're actually economic pressure on Ukraine. And that's that another. Yeah. Up to a point. I mean, there's that every strategy starts to develop diminishing returns. It just does. So to me, I think they're probably entering a no-go posture. Uh, and, and I suspect they're going to make a decision in the coming weeks. And by coming weeks, I mean like one to two weeks, personally. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think, I mean, to Mike's, Mike's great points, totally agree with Mike on this. I mean, the, when you look at the political costs, the one thing, the one line they have adhered to, you know, consistently is that the West is going to try to draw, draw this out into negotiations for a long period of time. And that's one of the one things they, they have pushed hardest against. So I think politically, like Mike said, it's a it's a go no go kind of situation. And while you can mitigate against some of the environmental effects of having soldiers deployed constantly, you know, uh, over time, like Mike said, it's gonna you know your your combat readiness is, is gonna drop considerably. Yeah, just hey, I have an unknowable question for both of you, but just kind of best guess. You know, lots of people like to say that Putin has backed himself into a corner. He's kind of caged. He doesn't have a way out. Um, do you think that's how he would view his current situation? So I get, I mean, the one thing I usually refer back to is the idea that if you really want to convince someone you're not going to retreat, you'd like the grass behind you on fire. Um, I think that's a, that's a shelling reference. And so I, if I say, if I were to say painting himself into a box, and I've used that phrase before too, what I, what I wouldn't want it to convey is that he inadvertently did that. Right. I think that he understands what this is. And I think it's important enough to him. Um, I mean, he's kind of killed most of the off ramps that that would have been out there from our perspective. And so in a certain way, I think he's it again, I don't want it to seem unintentional. Right. I think he's done this in such a way that he wants to have a very credible threat of, of invasion or of, of military, whatever you want to call it, a, a military solution to this. And so I think that's what he's intentionally done. Um, so my view is that, okay, he's, he's not a box in the sense that he can't back down. He definitely can. He can't do it without external and internal audience costs to some extent, more external probably than internal. That's just a fact of life. He could easily agree to pay him, uh, as, as sort of the, the price of doing business in this, uh, high stakes course of gambit. He could, uh, back down by simply declaring victory, doing some shuffle of forces, saying he's going to deploy permanently for some dollars instead. Uh, pocket what gains he feels he's made, and maybe come back in a year or two and ask for more based on the results of this interaction. Uh, it, it's all possible. I don't ever want to sound kind of monotone and say, oh, he has no option now other than a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. That's just not true. And leaders of great powers back down. They back down uh, in crises like this historically. It's just They definitely have options. Um, what I think, and I suspect Jeff and I are aligned on this, is that he's not going to. And that likely, um, that he very likely is not bluffing. And it's quite true that he's probably looking, to, was looking to see what he could get that might obviate the need to use force. But I think that he's given enough time to determine what the highest possible return is on course of diplomacy, diplomacy backed by the threat of force in this case. And that's why I think he's likely going to make a decision. And like I said, he may take, what he feels he's gotten out of this crisis and walk away um, and back down or go through with a, with an actual military operation. And I still suspect it's the latter. Yeah. 
um, and we're getting short on time and Andrea has been very gracious by offering me the opportunity to ask a question and I thank you, Andrea. But let me ask you guys, in the first hours after it's obvious he's they've now crossed in, uh, there are missile strikes, there are uh, you know all the prelude that we know happens before a um, you go overland. Um, what does the United States do in those first few hours? First 12 hours, once things go kinetic, what are the U.S. moves? No. ISR is one, I'll help you guys. ISR, we would probably begin to really focus in and track everything. Uh, so what else? Jim, I'm not Daz D for NATO Europe. That's another guy that was on this podcast <laughs> right now. I'll let Mike take that one out, but. <laughs> oh, Jeff, do you want to do you want to pick Chen? I'm I'm, ha I'm happy I'm, I'm happy to say what I think, but uh, if you want to start I, mean, I, don't, I mean, the first 12, 24 hours. I mean, I think it's just going to be a matter of of us building the picture and selling the pictures to our allies and trying to convince them like this is actually what's happening. And then I think they're going to try to move out on sanctions fairly quick, whether or not that happens in twenty four hours or not. I mean, I think they want to go big and go fast, so they might just be the administration. I mean, unlike the the gradual stuff we did in the Obama administration, they might be ready to pull the trigger pretty fast. So that wouldn't surprise me either. But is there a military move? Is there something? Uh, I mean, we don't want to fight him. We're not going to start shoving him in the in the in the schoolyard. But I mean, uh, what would we do? Would the eighty the rest of the eighty second goes over? What what do we do? Jim, can I ask you though, like what, then will NATO finally move? So the, the NATO defense force. So, you know, we, we've been waiting to do anything, I think, until it's clear that Russia is going in. Will they, once they see this, these opening hours, what, what will, what will the, what will NATO do? Well, I tell you, that's a great question because it allows me to say that I don't, I, I'm not so sure the section's got the votes in the knack to send like the NRF or something. That's what I NATO, meant. Yeah, that NATO, yeah, yeah. NATO can't deploy the VJTF, the NRF, all these various things. Sakir can can call them and, and he can kind of think he can kind of set them up to go, if you will. He can assemble them in some ways. But the NAC has to vote to go. And I don't know if he'll get that vote uh, because I don't know what Hungary would do. I'm not sure how. The, I mean, there, you know, there's ways to work around a no vote by a nation. Greece, you know, didn't want the Greece did not support the uh, Kosovo air campaign, so they voted. They at the end of the day, they voted, okay, okay, we'll go, but but we Greece, we're not going to take part in this, um, you know, for for domestic and regional reasons. So, so Hungary could do something like that, but I think it would be tricky, uh, more tricky than you think, for NATO to take a vote like that and expect to get uh, thirty, you know, consensus thirty votes. And we don't have time to get into it when we'll explore this, but Jim, how damaging do you think that would be to NATO as an institution if after Russia launches a major military invasion into Ukraine, albeit it's not a NATO member state? Um, what, what do you think that does to the credibility of NATO? I think NATO's credibility uh, could be saved somewhat if there are moves that we can make to reinforce already deploy battle groups, that type of thing. Uh, the, the NRF has never really been deployed and the VJTF has never been deployed. NRF was deployed years ago for a Pakistani uh, flood problem, <laughs> but, but, but it was a disaster. But, but that aside, 
it would be a big deal to deploy, to vote to deploy the NRF or the VJTF. And so um, I don't think they would do that unless they knew they had the votes. Because if they, if they said, okay, we're going to deploy and they only got 29 votes, that would just wreck the, I mean, that would be a very bad, very bad uh, outcome for NATO is that they, here, here's their big disaster. The, uh, the Central East European countries are looking for the cavalry to come. You know, they depended on NATO. They vote, they, you know, and they can't get the vote. Uh, showing that NATO isn't, you know, isn't not just not unified, but when the chips are down, you can't necessarily depend on them. And so I think he would not want to, Section would not want to run the potential that he doesn't get those that votes. But there are these other things that we could do that makes it look like NATO is is doing things, but in fact, it's not doing the big thing, which is like the NRF. All right. Well, we'll wrap there. You know, I really hope we don't have to keep talking to you guys on this podcast about this issue. Um, oh, no, I hope we can. I mean, no. Without without violence. And yes, you, exactly. Talking to you. Exactly. Um, but I appreciate always um, your perspective and expertise on this. And, you know, if things do head in a negative direction, then, um, you know, you guys will be one of our first calls. What's up, Mike? I just want to point out how I successfully passed Jim's question back to him. And, and <laughs> I think I helped you with that. Actually. that how, well played, Mike. Well played. That kind of bug passing is how NATO Alliance politics truly is. <laughs> you just learning. That's why I was ready for it. I was ready for it. You know, I knew how to, how to whack Jim it. Jim was up. hoping we would say, well, Jim, you're really the expert on this. And <laughs> Well, I, actually, I was very pleased to hear that. I was like, oh, I feel like a Brussels sprouts expert. This is great. Instead of just the questioner. No, that was great. No. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I guess we'll keep our seatbelts buckled. Um, hopefully we get through this week and, and then we'll take stock of where we are.